And oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praises. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of your Son. And we pray that you would help us as we come to your word this morning to understand just how special that is and how we should be responding to it. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, please be seated. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. He is risen indeed. Thank you, brother. Yes, hallelujah. Today, millions are gathering all over the world to rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, They will be celebrating in many different languages. They will be celebrating in the styles of many different cultures. In fact, my homeland in the UK, um, well, yeah, Easter morning hasn't really quite arrived yet. Uh, Many of the churches there, what they do is they hold a sunrise service. So they get ready for dawn and uh, the congregations will have found a place in the English countryside and they'll go out and they will hold a service celebrating the resurrection of Jesus just as the sun comes up. Many different languages and in many different styles of different cultures, but they are all celebrating one truth. We are united today with men and women all over the world celebrating that a little under 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth walked out of the grave. And we are part of that this morning. On Good Friday, we remembered how Jesus was brutally murdered, sentenced to death, even though he had done no crime. And after he died on the cruel cross, a rich man took his body, wrapped it in a burial cloth, placed it in a cold, dark tomb, cut out of the rock. And that was Good Friday. But on the Sunday morning, that first Easter morning, the stone was found, it was rolled away, the tomb was empty, and Jesus, now risen from the dead, started to meet people who had known him before he had died. They had seen him die, and now they were seeing him alive. They spoke with him, they ate with him. Those people who began to meet the risen Jesus knew as they saw him and as they recognized him that their lives would never be the same again. Life in this world will never be the same again. Now this morning we are not going to look at the compelling evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I believe, as do many of us here, that given the evidence, the most reasonable explanation for what happened that first Easter morning was that Jesus did rise from the dead. And I'd be very happy to talk to anyone who'd like to discuss afterwards what that evidence for the resurrection is. But this morning, we're going to look more closely at what the resurrection means for us. What are its implications? Why is it still worth rejoicing over all these years on? Let's just nail down what we mean by rejoicing in the resurrection of Jesus as Christians as well, shall we? We're not only saying that Jesus came back to life that first Easter day, we're saying that Jesus rose to a whole new order of life never to die again. It's not that he lived another 20 or 30 years and then died a bit later. We're saying he rose from the dead and there is no skeleton of Jesus out there in the world. He ascended back into heaven. He is with God the Father, alive and reigning by his side right now. 
That's what we mean by the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to look at three important implications of that wonderful truth this morning. As we listen into the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, what we just had read to us, in fact, it'd be a good idea if you could open back up your Bibles at 1 Corinthians 15, if you've closed them, page 1156 uh, in the yellow dot Bibles. I'm sorry, I don't know what it is in the green dot, but the yellow dot Bibles, page 1156. I'll just give you a minute if you need to open that back up. So three implications of the resurrection. The first one, the resurrection assures us we are saved. The resurrection assures us that Jesus saves. I'm going to read from verse 1 of chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is a matter of salvation, of rescue for us. As we believe that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried and then raised on the third day, that is the good news, the gospel by which we are being saved. Now have a look down in verse 17. Paul goes on to say, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. He, he looks at it the other way around. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. If he hasn't been raised, you are not saved. The resurrection is crucial to our salvation from sin. So we are never going to appreciate the significance of Jesus' resurrection unless we understand first what sin is and why we so desperately need a rescue from it. Now, right back at the beginning of the Bible, the story of humanity begins with our great ancestors, Adam and Eve. We read a bit of their story in Genesis 3 earlier. It starts with God creating us, mankind, as Adam and Eve, for relationship with him, to be stewards of this world, his gift to us, as they rejoice in him who made them to know him. But then that good order is tragically corrupted. As we read in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit from the one tree that God had restricted, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I wonder, have you ever wondered why it's called that? Why is it called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's not that Adam and Eve didn't know the difference between good and evil before eating from that tree. God had given them good commands to obey. But Adam and Eve, they desired to be wise like God. Their sin was primarily a matter of making themselves the rulers of their own lives, deciding for themselves the difference between right and wrong. And of course, as they did that, as they decided we will be the rulers of our own lives, they are rejecting God's good rule over them as they seek to enthrone themselves and dethrone him, the God who had given them life. That is sin, friends. It is mutiny against the God who made us to know and love and obey Him and delight in Him. And ever since that first rebellion, 
Humanity has lived by that pattern. Like Frank Sinatra said, I'm not going to sing it, but he said, I did it my way. But to reject God is to reject the giver of life. God had warned Adam that the consequences of sin would be death. And so as sin entered into our hearts in Adam and Eve, so death entered into our world. And ever since that day, a death sentence has hung over the entire human race. And the evidence of that is all around us, isn't it? Death is an enduring and painful reality, one that previous generations have appreciated far more than our own, I think. Because I'm told that back in the UK, uh, back in England in Victorian times, it wasn't unusual, especially for the wealthy, to have a bare skull on their work desk or on their mantelpiece at home. In fact, if you've seen uh, the latest version of Sherlock Holmes, you'll know that before Dr. John Watson comes along, his best friend is a skull above his fireplace. And of course, Sherlock Holmes was originally set in Victorian times. So there's Sherlock with his skull. And I'm told the reason the Victorians actually kept a skull in their sight as much as possible, it was to remind them of their mortality. That life is short. Don't waste it. I wonder, maybe I should put one on top of the TV. The reason I mention this, though, is because today's culture is very different, isn't it? There are very few sensitive topics that are not openly and unashamedly discussed on the internet or even in the news these days, but death is one of them. Death is one that we avoid. In fact, in Kuala Lumpur, as I've learned, we go to some serious extremes, don't we? You can tell I've been in Malaysia for a while because the other day I was driving and I, I came behind a car, I think it was on Jalambangsa, uh, and it had the number plate on it, BAX 4444. Now, before I came to Malaysia, I never would have thought that strange. I wouldn't have even noticed it. It's just another car. But now that I've got accustomed to not seeing the number four in KL, because in Chinese dialects it sounds very similar to the word death. You know, elevators have levels 3A, 13A. That freaked me out when I first got here. No, what on earth has happened to level four? People, people avoided having weddings on the fourth day of the month. Uh, people with the young pal packets, if they're being stingy or even if they're being generous, they won't give you either four ringgit or 40 ringgit because the number four is associated with death. The one thing we want to put out of our minds. And in one sense, that is understandable. Death is not a nice thing to talk about or think about, is it? Death makes our worldly securities come to nothing. It mocks them. We were made to worship the God who made us to have life forever with him, but as we are now cut off from him in our sin, in our mutiny, we look to other things outside of ourselves for satisfaction and security. We invest in our wealth. We invest in our work. We invest in our family. And we try our hardest to forget that even as we enjoy those things, those good gifts from God, that death will one day bring them to nothing. Sooner or later. Can't take those blessings with us to the grave. As Job said, we are born naked into this world and naked we will leave it. And in sin, as we leave this world, we face the grim reality of God's judgment. Because as we have forsaken him in this life, so he will grant in one sense our wish in the next, an eternity devoid of him and his good blessing. 
Uh, the Paras, they're a, an army regiment in the UK. They are known to be one of the hardest army squads. They go on the most dangerous missions. They are hard as nails. And their motto is, Paras don't die, they regroup in hell. Paras don't die, they regroup in hell. It sounds very macho. It sounds very hard. But the reality that Jesus Christ gives us in the Gospels is very different. That hell is not a place of relationship. It's a place of darkness. It's a place of isolation, of despair. Because friendship and love and relationship that we enjoy in this life, that we often take for granted, these are gifts of God. Death and judgment for sin. That's a really painful reality that we continually want to suppress. And yet what we celebrate today is that God did not leave us in that mess of sin. That in the person of his son Jesus, he has given us a certain hope. Let's look at these words that Jesus spoke to his disciples on the night that he was going to die. He said to them, let not your hearts be troubled Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus knew that he was about to be betrayed, beaten, and executed on a cruel cross. And you see how positively he speaks of his death here? Oh, it would mean death for him, but it would mean new hope for those who follow him. He says it, a place in his father's house, a relationship with God restored. It's an incredible claim. And yet we know it's true. How? Because Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. He rose again from the dead as he said he would, as we read on. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. No, Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. His words were true. His words about sin were true. His words about hell were true. And his words about him being our savior from those things are true. He is the son of God come to us to reconcile us to his heavenly father by dying that death that Adam and Eve and we deserve for our sin. And so his father raised him from the dead to testify to all Jesus is able to save. Not our good moral behavior. Not our attending church most of the time, or at least at Christmas and Easter. Not anything that we do. Because we've all fallen short of the mark, like Adam and Eve. There's nothing that we can give to God to make up for our sin. We owe Him everything in the first place. But at the cross, the one person who did not sin in incredible love took on our sins instead. And the resurrection testifies that his death is enough. In Jesus, God has paid the price for sin in full. So as we trust in him, as we recognize him as our risen Lord of life, we have assurance, a certain hope. God no longer holds our sins against us because Jesus died and rose again. The resurrection means Jesus saves. And secondly, as we trust in Jesus, his resurrection assures us that we will live. Come back again to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at verse 20. Paul goes on, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul here, he describes Jesus' resurrection as the firstfruits. You know, when a gardener or, or a farmer, he sees the first of the crop, the first fruits coming through and they're healthy, he gets really excited. He knows that that is a sign that the, the rest of the crop is going to be good. It's, it's the first fruits that promise a greater harvest to come, a greater crop. And, and Paul says Jesus' resurrection, it's like the first fruits of harvest. It, it promises that there is a greater resurrection to follow. So for us, almost 2,000 years since Paul wrote this, we know that there will literally be millions of people who are raised to eternal life with God. Just as Jesus was raised, so millions who trust in him will be raised like him. And Paul goes on speaking of how Adam was the head of the human race. He sinned and as a result, he died and death came to us all. And so all of us who are descended from Adam, we also will die Yet Paul now says there is a new head. There's a new head for humanity. It's Jesus. And all who belong to him, who acknowledge him as their rightful head, will be made alive. In Adam all die. In Christ all are made alive. And this future, it isn't make-believe. It's not there just to make us feel better when someone close to us does pass away. I often hear those Kind sentiments, but in one sense, wishful thinking without foundation when people come up to you and say, you know, well, they're in a better place. They're at peace. They've just passed on. My own father died from cancer when I was eight years old. So more, uh, many more years ago than I would care to say. And I can't really remember the memorial service that we held for him because I was so young. But if I asked my mum today, I'm sure she would be able to say, as much as that was a time of great sadness and grief for us as a family, during that service and in the days and the months and the years that followed, we were still able to know deep joy because my father had a savior so great that he had faced death for him and conquered the grave. My dad had an eternal future to look forward to, a promise that just as he is with the Lord now in spirit, so one day his body will be raised to new life like Jesus, never to die again. That's a certain hope that my family could rejoice in even as we remembered my father's death at his memorial service, knowing we will share in that future with him only because Jesus is risen from the dead. Only because in him we have the hope of eternal life. And so it is for each of us. Jesus' resurrection assures us that we can have life beyond the grave as we trust in him. And the third thing that Paul highlights for us, the third implication, the resurrection assures us that Jesus wins. That Jesus wins. Have a look in verse, uh, verse 24. <clears throat> it says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Uh, we rejoice in Jesus risen from the dead today, and yet we still live in a world that is under the reign of sin and death, don't we? We witness suffering, we witness injustice, pain, misery on a daily basis. If it's not happening to us right now, we're well aware of others who are being afflicted. We read the newspapers, we go to the online news sites, 
Uh, There were two stories that stood out for me as I read the news this past week. Uh, The first concerned the brutal stabbing and murder of two British citizens who were in Kuching last year. And the headline read, Borneo Man Guilty of Britain's Murder. Now there is a situation in which justice is prevailing. And we can give thanks for the times when the authorities that God has established in our land do faithfully execute justice in the face of wickedness and evil. But alongside that smaller headline, there was a much larger one. It was the main story of the day. IS, the self-proclaimed Islamic State. I know they've done more things since then, but this is what I was reading back then. They had invaded and is now, are now taking over most parts of a huge refugee camp in Damascus. 18,000 men, women, and children are now facing the real threat of barbaric conditions under that cruel regime. A statement from the UN Relief Agency read, fighting would place these civilians, including large numbers of children, at extreme risk of death, serious injury, trauma, and displacement. And we do pray for relief for them from that crisis. We pray that those responsible would repent of their actions and those who persist would be brought to justice. And yet, sadly, experience has taught us, hasn't it, that it's likely many of the per- perpetrators won't be brought to justice in this life. They will join the ranks of men like Idi Amin and Pol Pot and others who, despite their horrendous crimes, were allowed to live out their days in relative peace and comfort. The resurrection tells us that is not the end of the story. Death is no hiding place for the wicked. Because Jesus rose from the dead and reigns in heaven now, we can know that one day at his return all will be raised to face him. Through Jesus, as we read in verse 14, every rule and authority and power that stood against him and his father in sin will be judged and condemned. Satan, the serpent who first tempted Adam and Eve, brought the curse of sin and death into this world, Satan who has worked up to this point to promote wickedness and injustice in the hearts of men, he will be condemned. As God writes, every wrong that has resulted from our decision to reject him as our good Lord and the havoc that has wreaked in our world, Jesus will win in the end. God's goodness and justice will prevail in the end. And he will destroy the power of death itself. As he ushers in a new creation in which suffering and pain and death are no more for the old order of things have passed away. And those who have bowed the knee to Jesus will be at peace. We will be able to say, gone is the curse from which I stumbled and fell. Evil has vanished into eternal hell. Because we'll be back where we belong. In the awesome presence of the God who made us to know and love him and seek his glory forever. And so as we close, the question we need to ask ourselves this Easter morning is, whose side are we on? Can we really celebrate the resurrection? On the day we are raised, will we face Jesus as the Savior we've submitted to and loved or the judge that we've despised? Because no one can stand against him and live. And yet we know none of us have loved and honored God as we should. We may not be warmongers or murderers, but all of us are guilty of the infinite crime of mutiny against the one who gave us life. All of us deserve to die and face judgment, as Tim reminded us earlier in the kids' talk. 
And unless we've let Jesus face that judgment for us, we've surrendered our lives to him as our crucified Savior, as our risen Lord of life, unless we've done that, well, then we will face separation from the God we were made to know and enjoy. We will lose every comfort we have known by his grace in this life. The resurrection, it's the proof that God has dealt with sin in Jesus by his mercy. The resurrection is the proof that God will deal with every sin by Jesus in his justice. He will right every wrong. So can I urge you, don't leave this room today until you know that your sins are dealt with, until you really can celebrate Easter, until you know that Jesus is your wonderful Savior, he is your risen Lord, he is the one who alone has faced and conquered death for the sake of those he came to save. Put your faith in him and live. And, and for those of us who have done that, well, as we have been doing since the beginning, rejoice. Today is a day of great rejoicing to thank God that he has done what we never could in our sin. He has raised his son from the dead. We know we're saved. We are saved from our sins by his blood. We know we have new life. We know we have eternal life in his son. And we know Jesus will win. We have a certain hope of a better world to come in which suffering and injustice and the pain of this life will be no more. So for those of us who are trusting in him, let me encourage you, resolve to continue rejoicing in Jesus each day, living for him as Lord, knowing our lives, whether in life or death, are secure, putting away the sin that lingers that keeps us from knowing and loving him as we should, And continually looking to his cross for hope and strength as we face tomorrow, knowing that our ultimate tomorrow is secure. Because Jesus died and Jesus rose to bring us to eternal life in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your great mercy you have given us new birth into a living hope for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We thank you that though we deserve so different, you have given us the promise of eternal life in your Son because he took it all, sin, all the sin of his people on himself, that we might have the hope of forgiveness and eternal life in his name. Father, I pray that each and every one of us would be celebrating Easter for the right reasons today. Those of us who know we need to repent, we need to give up that place of rulership in our lives and surrender it to Jesus, who alone is Lord, in whom we can have life, please, Lord, enable that. For those of us who have bowed the knee, please strengthen us to continue enduring and rejoicing in Christ, to keep on remembering amidst the business of life that whether in life or death, our lives are secure in him, so help us to live for him above all and to look forward to that great future that we have in him by your grace, where we will rejoice in the presence of your glory, and sin and suffering and death will be no more. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.